Our sermon text this morning is from 2 Peter 3.17. However, we're going to begin by reading verses 12 to 15 in chapter 1. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. Take care how you hear. This is God's holy word. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's give thanks together. Thank you, Father, for providing for us through the inspired word everything we need for life and godliness. Thank you that through your word and the faithful work of your Holy Spirit, we are kept and preserved and blessed. Use your word this morning, filling me with your Holy Spirit to preach and empowering all those here to listen well, that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever thought about what you would want your last words to be? I mean, if, if you knew, hopefully at a ripe old age, that your days were, were coming to an end and you were about to depart, what would you want those last words to be? It's not everyone who gets that opportunity. Often, we don't get that opportunity a- at all. Death finds us when we're not ready and our last words are not the thing that we would want said. Uh, for example, that's the case with, with uh, Union Major John Sedgwick. At the Battle of Spotsylvania, he was, he was commanding his, his troops, reprimanding them uh, to stop ducking for cover and to engage the enemy. And, and they heard him, in his last words, say, they couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. Pretty sure that was not something he wanted written on his tombstone. On the other hand, you have Leonardo da Vinci, who did know that he was about to, about to perish. And as Leonardo would, he crafted his last words quite carefully. And he said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Mm, thanks, Leonardo. Uh, maybe that's like the world's greatest humble brag ever <laughs> as last words. I think, though, my favorite story of last words come from uh, millionaire Richard Mellon. He was on his deathbed, and his brother Andrew was there. And as he was about to pass, his brother Andrew leaned over to hear him whisper his last words. And as he leaned over, Richard reached up his hand and touched Andrew's shoulder and said, last tag, and then died. (laughs) Well played. Well played. It's a privilege, really, if we have the opportunity to to think about our last words. Last words, they're very important words. They're an occasion to bless our loved ones. They can be a solemn opportunity to express regrets, failures. They can be an opportunity to give thanks for the opportunities and the blessings that we've had in life. Final words, they're weighty words. And so when we come to the, the book of 2 Peter, we find the apostle writing a letter very self-consciously knowing that his departure was in mind. Jesus had told him it was coming soon. He was, he was at the end of his, of his race. And he, writing to the church, very much thinking, how can I make sure that you have everything you need after 
I am gone, wrote this final epistle. And he wrote it to the church at large. The church that Jesus himself had charged him to feed and to tend and to care for. And so as Peter's putting, uh, contemplating putting off his body, which was coming soon, his imminent departure, he wanted to make sure that the church would have all she needed to remember his teachings. He wanted to ensure that they would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though his personal ministry was coming to an end, he very much wanted to leave the church with everything they needed to know for the days to come. And so this is his last opportunity. This is his last letter. His, the, the, the last time he has to, to charge them, to bless them, to teach them, to protect him, them. And while these weren't his, his verbal last words, they were certainly his last written words that we have in Scripture. And since these are his last words, since it's his last occasion with all of this weight of concern about the future as he's about to depart, we want to give careful attention to what he says. And not only are we going to be looking at this last epistle, but we're really focusing on the second to last verse, the last couple verses, the very last thing that Peter has to say. His signing off, his, his exhortation, the last thing he says to the church. And so given how weighty these words are, we want to give careful attention to them. And so I'm going to work through verse 17, just one word, a couple words at a time, so that we can feel the weight of what Peter wanted to leave us with as he concluded this last letter at the very conclusion of his life in ministry. He begins in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, you, you, he grabs that attention, right? I think he knows that often when we come to you know, an end of a, of, a, of a sermon or an end of a, uh, a speech or an end of a letter, we kind of start to anticipate it and we might even check out a little bit too soon. So right there, he says, you, he wants our attention. He's not going to let us fall asleep. He's not going to let us check out when he's going to lay down this most important thing that he has to say. You, therefore, he says, you, therefore. Now, we began by reading a few verses in the first chapter, and now we're at the very last verses, and we've skipped the whole middle part of the book, and of course, we don't have time to read the whole book. Um, so just very quickly, in a nutshell, to understand some of the context, what this therefore is that he's reminding them of as he's getting ready to, to give his last exhortation, if we were to read through the whole book, we'd see that Peter's primary concern is about false teachers and false prophets that were going to arise and mislead people. He was concerned about these, and he, and he uh, is concerned that the church will be able to avoid the error that they would bring, that they, that they would stand in the truth that he had taught them. And so, given that this was going to happen, that these false teachers were going to arise, he says, you, therefore, based on everything I've just said in this whole letter, you, therefore, beloved. You, therefore, beloved. In this last chapter of 2 Peter, he uses the word beloved five times. He is appealing to his readers. He's appealing to the church on the basis of a, of a fatherly affection, as we would appeal to our own children. You, therefore, beloved, hear these last words of mine. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, he says. Knowing this beforehand. And again, we have this, this there referencing everything that he has said in the letter, um, which we can't read. Um, but to give a little bit more context so that we understand um, 
what all of this concluding remark is, is relating to. It's, it's this issue of truth and error and these false prophets, but it's also relating to something imminent. In the same way that his departure was imminent, so too the concerns that he was addressing were imminent for them in that day. See, it was going to get really hot for the church in that generation, in the first century. As God's judgment came, was approaching uh, against Jerusalem and against the temple in 70 AD, things were going to get real serious. And so a lot of what he has written in 2 Peter relates to this thing that's about to take place within a few years of when Peter wrote this letter. And so it's very timely for them what they're dealing with. He says, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care. He's just heaping up all of these words and phrases to get their attention. You, therefore, based on everything I've said so far, beloved, because of my affection for you and my concern, take care. Watch out, guard, protect, preserve everything that, I'm a, that I've said and that I'm about to say. He's, he's just winding this up, his concluding remark. He's weighing all this emphasis on it. But he hasn't actually gotten to his subject yet. So let's see what he has to say. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error. And we'll just leave that off for now. We'll come to the specific error. But, but when he says, don't be carried away with an error, this also references one of the themes in 2 Peter. Inasmuch as he's concerned about these false teachers arising, he's concerned because, as he said in the very first verse, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He wants the church to be established, firmly established in the truth. And so avoid the error, the falsehood that's coming their way. This, this, this issue of truth and falsehood is what the, the apostle is concerned about. He wants them to stay in the truth, to avoid all error. His overarching concern from start to finish is stand, church. Stand firmly in the truth. Watch out. Avoid the errors that are coming your way, the falsehood that is going to arise. In fact, the way that he describes these false uh, false prophets in, in chapter 2. I'll just read a, a one verse, uh, verse 2. Describing these false teachers, he says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. False words. So the overarching concern of Peter for the church is they would stand in the truth. They would avoid the error. They would avoid falsehood. False words, deceptive words. But we still haven't come to the actual concrete subject here. He's just, he's just weighted up his exhortation and his concern. He's loaded it up. He's pleading with them to watch out, watch out for error, stand in the truth. But then he gives us the particular error. Now, I wonder if you had to fill in the blank here. We haven't read what the error is. But if I were to ask you, what do you think is the biggest problem today in America or the biggest problem in the church? If we took a poll, did a survey, I think we probably would have a pretty long list of candidates, don't you think, of what the, what the core problem is these days? We could have a lot of options. But what does Peter say? What is his greatest concern as he's signing off of his final letter? He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. 
the error of lawless people, the error of lawlessness is the error that Peter is most concerned about. Is that how you would have filled in the blank? Is that what came first to mind as the primary issue we ought to be aware of that Peter would want the church as he's about to depart to watch out for, just watch out, be careful of lawlessness? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. But why, why does Peter feel that this particular error is so destructive that he uses his last words to warn us about them? Well, he, he gives us a clue as to why it's so important. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and, as a result, lose your own stability. Have you ever thought about the connection between lawlessness and instability? Lawlessness and instability. That's what Peter is making the connection here. And, and he's very emphatic. If you don't avoid this error, if you fall into lawlessness, you will lose your stability. And stability is something that is so precious, isn't it? Don't we long for stability? Don't you want stability in your own life? In your own family? For, for your own children? Don't you, want, don't you want our church to be stable? Our, our communities, our nation, the world, don't we long for stability? God wants us to be stable. He wants a stable word, world. In Psalm 46, the author cries out for this stability. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We want stability. We want a fortress. We want a stronghold. Stability is one of the deepest longings of our hearts. And Jesus wants it for us too. That's why he, he warned us and taught us in Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then <clears throat> who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell because it was unstable. It was, and great was the fall. How often do we find exhortations in Scripture about standing and standing firm like Ephesians 6.13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Or similarly, in Philippians, we see Paul's ache for them to be stable. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We need to stand firm. We have to stand firm in our faith. We long to worship God as our fortress, our refuge, our strong rock. And besides, what's the alternative to, not stand, to standing? To not stand would be to fall, right? Do we want to fall? No. God forbid that we would fall. And so, in this last exhortation of Peter, he's wound it up, he's weighted it, and he's warned us to avoid the error of lawlessness so that we will not lose our stability. We must avoid the error of lawlessness. But what I'd like to do this morning is to just take the converse of that statement. 
if the error to avoid is lawlessness leading to instability, then the positive command would be what? Lawfulness. Walk in accordance with the law. Uphold the law properly. And as a result, we would expect stability. So how can we, in an age and in a world that is just profoundly unstable, a generation that is profoundly unstable and equally lawless, find our way to proper lawfulness and regain some stability in our lives. When we look around the world today, it is profoundly lawless, isn't it? You look at the political polarization. You look at skyrocketing divorce rates. You look at educational decline and epidemic emotional disorders. We call them disorders, right? But are they not just various descriptions of various forms of mental and emotional instability? That's what they are. We call them disorders. Could it be that our cultural academics are related to and the consequences of the fact that we've simply become so lawless? And if so, how do we get it back? Well, we heed Peter's last exhortation. We take care. We take pains to not fall into the error of lawlessness and instead hold to the truth of proper upholding of God's law. So that's where I want to aim for um, this morning. But I want to begin with a bit of a qualification. Whenever we approach this subject, how do we avoid lawlessness, thereby walking lawfully, we approach the question of the Christian's relationship to the law. And as soon as we do that, a lot of questions get raised. And, and so I want to make one very clear qualification as we talk about how do we walk lawfully, which is that the primary operating principle of the Christian life is grace. The primary operating principle of the Christian life is grace. We walk by grace. When we talk about the practicalities of the Christian life, prayer, Bible, reading, fellowship, worship, we call these means of grace because they are of God's grace. And to be sure, if anyone thinks that by walking according to God's law, walking in the truth and, and walking in accord with God's law, that somehow by that they are inclining God's favor or impressing God or contributing or adding to their salvation in some way, God forbid, that would be a different error. <laughs> that would be the error of legalism. That would be the idea that we can contribute to our salvation. And uh, Paul has very strong words about those that would seek to use the law to somehow advance our salvation. That's an error. But that does not mean that walking in accordance with the law is somehow incompatible with grace, that it's somehow incompatible with walking in the Spirit. That is an error too. And that's the error of antinomianism. Antinomianism, anti meaning against, namas, the law, being against the law. And sometimes when you read books today or hear teachings today about God's grace and walking in the grace of God, you can easily come away with the idea that walking in grace means somehow putting off the law, ignoring it completely. Sometimes grace is taught in an errant way, such that any 
any hint of doing something or duty or of working or, or, or of obedience or of keeping the law, that you hear those phrases in some circles, alarm bells go off, that the legalism boogeyman has showed up. We've got to run for cover. If, if you're hearing teachings about grace that way, you're probably listening to an errant form of teaching about grace. The antinomian error that Peter takes his last final words to warn us about. See, fully walking in grace and fully walking in the Spirit, they can't be separated. They cannot be separated. We can't be saved by the law. We can't contribute to our salvation in any way. But having been called into a gracious salvation, we must put on all of the provisions given to us for walking out our Christian life. And that includes Paul, uh, Peter's exhortation here, that we take care, we take pains to avoid the error of lawlessness and lose our stability. So this is what Peter's warning us about. And, and just to bolster this a little bit, I want to just make sure you understand it's not just this one little concluding verse in 2 Peter that references the proper place of the law in the Christian life. There are some other places. I'll read just a few. Um, one important one is found in 1 Timothy 1.8 and following. Paul writes this about the law. He says, Now that we know the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, Underscore that for a second. We're going to come back to that phrase. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul commends the law there, just as he does in Romans 7. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And just as Jesus did in Matthew 5, where he said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And also James, in James 1, 25, he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, properly obeying the law is a part of the fabric of the Christian life. It's extremely important for our spiritual health, for the purity of our faith, and to glorify God in the world. To set proper obedience to the law against grace is the very error Peter is warning about. An error that leads to instability. And so, Peter urges us strongly, emphatically, to take care. Don't be carried away by this error. Maintain the truth. Walk in proper obedience to the law. And so I want to conclude with some, with some, um, some help, hopefully helpful uh, principles that might help us to actually apply this, to take care, to avoid lawlessness. And so the first one I want to talk about briefly is just, in order to avoid something, you need to know what it looks like. How do we see where there is lawlessness in order to avoid it? And so we'll look at that briefly. I'll spend a little bit more time on the more positive aspect of 
how do we dispose ourselves properly to the law inwardly such that we receive its benefits and its blessings and protection. So first of all, if we want to take care to avoid something, we need to know what it looks like. And if you read through the book of 2 Peter, he actually focuses on this more outward, observable fruit of error and lawlessness. And what he says is that the error of lawlessness results in instability, but this instability can be observed in a certain way. It can be observed wherever you see immorality. Lawlessness leads to instability, which is observed and seen in immorality. We can see this in how he describes the fruit of those false teachers in 2 Peter 2.18. He says, "For, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. So it's actually pretty easy to spot. If you want to see the error in order to avoid it, just look around and look for immorality. If you see immorality, you do not have to search too far to find where God's law has been transgressed. That's the fruit of lawlessness. It's, it's easy to spot it, but it isn't necessarily quite so easy to avoid it in the first place because while we can see the fruit of lawlessness in the world, you can't really see a person's inner disposition to the law, can you? You can't see whether they are revolting from any notion of it or whether they are leaning in and, 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 and worshiping God for it like the psalmist does in, in Psalm 119. You can't see that. But how we relate to that law how we orient ourselves to it, how we put the positive part of this on and avoid lawlessness by walking lawfully, well, that's critical. That's, what, that's the positive part of what we need to do. And so I want to spend some time talking about some of the implications of one of the things that, that, that Paul wrote to Timothy with respect to our orientation, proper orientation to the law. You remember I asked you to underscore that phrase, the law is good so long as one uses it lawfully. It's a fascinating phrase, and there's some real profound implications in that phrase. First implication is that there is always a law over and above all other laws. It's not enough to simply know the contents of the law, to know the Ten Commandments. You ought to know those. But just knowing the the contents of the law isn't all that we need to know. We need to know how to use the law lawfully. implies that no matter what laws are are being observed or established or recognized, there's a proper way to relate to that law. Just the mere contents of it isn't enough. There's a way we need to orient ourselves. And and I am concerned for for us as a church, broadly speaking, in in, in the world today, that not only have we entered into the era of lawlessness, and so we're completely ignorant of the contents of the law, how many Christians can even quote the Ten Commandments? Do we even know those? We've lost the content. And if we've lost the contents of the law, what about this category of the prudence and the discretion needed to use the law lawfully? Do we have a clue about that? Not, not a great one. And so I want to look at some of these implications of, of what Paul had said about this, this um, using the law lawfully so that we can use the law lawfully and, and receive the benefits, both the blessings of stability and avoid the error of lawlessness. So when he says 
that we need to use the law lawfully, the first thing he's saying is there is always an eternal law over and above all, over law, all other laws. How you use the laws, there's a governing law. And we need to know what those things are. And while it may feel like we're so lost as a church, broadly speaking, uh, not even knowing the Ten Commandments, how lost is that if, if, if we need to walk <laughs> within the law to avoid this error? How do, we, how do we gain this? How do we get all of this knowledge of the law and lawful use of the law? Well, we do have to repent and get back and study and understand what God's laws are. Maybe we need to just memorize the Ten Commandments. But the good news is that it's actually not that hard to reacquaint yourself with God's law. Because you see, unlike our laws in the United States, where, where our government just creates piles and piles and books and books of regulations and positive laws, things that they compel us to do, so many that we have to hire professionals just to fill out a tax form. Unlike that kind of law, God's laws are simple and basic. And, and mostly they consist of negative commands of things we can't do. And there's basically 10. You can kind of trace them out into specifics, but there's basically 10 heads. And there are things you just are not allowed. You can't kill people, okay? You got that one? Okay, don't steal stuff. Okay, I mean, that's, that's not that hard to understand. See, it's only when godless, idolatrous rulers gain power that they start using the law in such a way as to uh, have overreaching power grabs and lay burdens on us. You see, Jesus told us that to follow him, including following the law, is an easy yoke. God's law, properly understood, is an easy yoke. It's clear, it's simple, it's basic. It's some things we're not supposed to do. And, we, and, and when we understand those boundaries, guess what's left? Liberty. You understand the boundaries, the simple boundaries, everything else that's open? Liberty. That's why James says God's law is a perfect law, a law of liberty, not an oppressive stacks and piles of, of obligations. That's human law. God's law is basic and clear and simple. And I want to just give you one example of a kind of a law in the Bible that we find that stands above all other laws, a law for using the law lawfully. Have you ever heard of lex talionis? If you don't know that phrase, you probably know where it comes from. It comes from Exodus 21, uh, where, where it says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So you've heard that, right? We call it lex talionis. Often when we encounter that law in scripture, we might have this like initial revulsion reaction, like, oh my goodness, that's such an ancient and harsh law, right? An eye for an eye, that's just barbaric. Well, listen, that law, first of all, it's not an absolute necessity saying if you happen to knock someone's tooth out, you know, here you go, yanking your. There's places for mercy and forgiveness. You don't, it's not a law saying you must take a, a hand for a hand. What it's saying is you may not take a head for a hand. And that's very important. You know why? Because when we get offended, when someone insults us, when someone injures us, when we experience injustice, do you want to be equitable in your response? Be honest. You want to take a head for a hand, don't you? Me too. And so God says, no, you do not. You do not go beyond my law. My law says equity, justice, fairness, equal scales, balanced measures. You may not go beyond a hand for a hand. 
Lex talionis is an example of a, a simple principle that limits those who exercise authority in various spheres. And we all must understand this is one of those things, God says, about how to use the law lawfully. Another implication of what Paul wrote there was that, because um, he, he was writing with a specific um, kind of law and sphere of law in mind, particularly a civil sphere where they're dealing with, with crimes. But an implication of that is one of the limiting factors of the law, one of the laws for lawful use of the law, is that we recognize there are different spheres of law and different rules, offices, roles, tools that are appropriate to those spheres. For example, in Scripture, we find uh, three particular spheres that are actually symbolized in, in the Bible with um, the sword, the keys, and the rod. There are different spheres of authority that we find, different uh, places of governance or, or law. The sword represents the civil magistrate where they actually have a sword, which in cases of extreme crime and murder, they might actually use literally or to put someone to death. They have that in their toolbox. That's a proper place for the, the, the civil government. The keys represent church authority and the rod, the home or the father's authority. But if we think about this principle with respect to the sword, lex talionis, first of all, it's the civil government who has that, not other spheres, right? That's for them. And when they use it, an actual sword, it's only in cases of murder or extremely serious crimes which merit a death penalty. May the civil magistrate use the sword for stealing? No. They're forbidden. God's law judges all human governments. If they decide to go beyond a hand for a hand, they are unlawfully using the law. They are, in their effort to be lawful, lawless, which only adds to instability, not producing it, which is what it's supposed to be for. So a civil magistrate needs to think through all of its tools at its disposal. If it's going to regulate the speed of cars, and it's going to determine that tickets and fines are more fitting than a sword, thank goodness, <laughs> that we don't have to have the sword for that particular penalty. It's just an example of how we recognize that God's law is a law above all laws, teaches us how to use the law lawfully, and it's measured. It's simple. It keeps things properly in bounds so that the use of the law accomplishes its purpose and doesn't become a means of greater instability. I don't think any of us here are, are magistrates or elected officials, so we probably don't need to worry about this particular category this much, but let's look at the other two briefly because that is a little bit closer to home. The keys and the rod, the keys representing uh, the, the spiritual sphere, the sphere of the church and the, the authority that the church has. And the keys represent the, the rightful place for, for church officers, elders and pastors, to open or lock a door, to admit or reject members of the church to maintain order and discipline and stability through this exercise of church discipline. But, but, but keep in mind that, that whole lex talionis principle, right? Does uh, an elder excommunicate every member where there's discipline necessary? <laughs> I hope not. We have a very small church. <laughs> they have to think through what is the proper form of correction for a given case. How do they prudently, with discretion, apply God's law in a measured, equal way? So that correction happens, we don't ignore the things, we, we, we lean in, but we don't use the sword, we don't use excommunication at every offense. 
that's a worthy topic of thought for, for elders and pastors to think about. How do they properly uh, use the law to, to create stability, to maintain order and discipline, but in a proper measured way? That, that's very important, and we'll leave it to our elders and, and pastor to, to figure that out. The third one, though, is probably one we all need to think about, don't we? Because a lot of us are parents, many of us are, are children, we all live in families. And so this third sphere of the lot rod, which represents the family and, and the father's discipline or the, the parental discipline, there's a very important sphere there, isn't there, for, for keeping order and maintaining governance to make your family stable. If you don't discipline your kids, you won't have a stable household. But how do you discipline your kids? I hope that you don't always use the rod. There may be times when you need to, you know, actually spank a young child uh, when a particularly poignant moment of correction is necessary, and, and that's why it's there. But just like the sword isn't used for every crime, and just like excommunication isn't used for every form of discipline, the rod isn't used for every form of discipline in the family. What, what are equitable measures? What's lex talionis look like? Do we use a rod when maybe a, a, a simple word of correction is, is, is appropriate? How do we think that through? How do we as parents think through our governance in a way that uses the law to keep stability, but uses it lawfully under the law of God, which restrains how we use that law? We have to think this through. These are extremely important things to, to process, because if we fail to do this, if we completely ignore the law, then we're going to enter into lawlessness and instability. But if we try to use the law unlawfully, we've only become unlawful <laughs> users of the law, and we're not going to produce stability. So we have to give this careful thought. And I just want to take a moment to just express my gratitude uh, for our church uh, and for our elders, because we've seen them, haven't we, labor and toil and deal with issues, hard issues. And then, you know what? They probably have done a hundred others we don't know about <laughs> to properly maintain good order in the church. And also, I'm really grateful to be uh, an American. I think our Constitution is a pretty good summary, actually, of God's basic laws expressed in, in, uh, in society, if, you know, if only we could keep it, <laughs> if only we could exercise it properly in our day. Um, and, and I'm also grateful for the ways in which God has uh, taught me to exercise uh, authority in my own home as I, as I govern. But when I look out into the world, and we see the condition today of our government, which is not operating anywhere close to the way our Constitution was written. When we look at the church broadly, when we see the condition of families, we see heartbreaking instability everywhere, don't we? And unsurprisingly, ignorance of and rejection of God's law. And when the functions of law in the world fail, when sins go unchecked, Wickedness, immorality, it's going to increase, and we will all be subject to more sin, leading to even more instability. And so, in our longing for stability, observing the instability of our age, we sometimes, all we can do is cry out like David, right? He was just, who cried out, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How do we restore this? Well, we, we can pray, like David did. Uh, that justice to roll down like waters and righteousness, let righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And we can heed Peter's exhortation to take care, take pains, that we not be carried away by the error of lawlessness, that we learn positively how to practice the law lawfully in our individual lives through self-governance, 
and in our families and in our church and however we might have opportunity in our communities and in our nation. In a day and an age where we ought to be exercising the law, we've instead overturned it. In a day when churches prefer to ignore serious and known sins rather than apply gracious discipline, when families are divided and broken, where children are discipled by humanistic sentimentality, where they're discipled by Disney more than by sound doctrine, we must all the more heed the final last words of the Apostle Peter. Take care. They were not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose our own stability. But let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to move in our day to restrain evil, restore order, and establish your law above all other laws. As we look to a day when your word will be more fully obeyed by nations and states, by churches, by fathers and families, we ask you to help us in our church, in our families, in our individual lives to study your law and walk uprightly, obediently, actively taking care that we hold fast to the truth and escape the error of lawlessness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.